I'm here with Stephen Tater, creative director, designer, sculpture expert, and um, and a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. In fact, he is my brother-in-law. <laughs> a very long time. A very long time. And we are down in his studio in southeast Portland, where I am surrounded by all sorts of yummy goodies about how to make things. There are blankets. Yummy there goodies. You make me sound like a baker, pastry <laughs> chef. It is kind of like a, has that feeling, though. You're making here. A pastry chef makes bread and croissants, and you make... Look at this. There's a box full of, of bolts and various yes, I, bolts. I threaded every one of those bolts. And then next to me, I also have this kind of spindle full of these... Uh, I don't know if they're blades or they're things that Those are actually cutting discs, grinding blades, diamond cutting discs. So like cut up what significance about all of them is they, they're all worn, and they have all been used mostly to cut and shape blocks of glass hmm. and granite. Wow. For sculptures that I've executed over the course of the last, oh gosh, I don't know how many years now. It's been a while. So this is the second studio that I've been of yours. I was in the Cleveland studio, in fact. Much larger. Much larger, and you were making glass sculptures in there. Um, and I also ran my uh, knitting factory. That's right. There. Ohio Knitting Mills. The Ohio Knitting Mills. Which you were the creative director of as well. Yes. Yes. Um, and we helped. Uh, you helped me. You taught me how to make a sculptor, a little glass and stone thing that I still have. I was very charmed to see it in your uh, new apartment. Mm -hmm. It was over for dinner the other night. It was a keeper. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there's also a handbook of metric gears near me, a magazine called Clutch that appears to deal with Japanese denim. Yeah, I think it's here because uh, Ohio Knitting Mills is in the magazine. Um, we got. We were. We were big in Japan, just like Tom Waits. There's some half uh, eight eight and thirty second uh, machine screws. Oh wow! I need oh, those. Here we go. <laughs> Actually, this box is here only because National National Screw was the um, original owner of the bu original building that Ohio Knitting Mills was founded in. It was a massive block, a uh, huge city block building in uh, the industrial part of Cleveland, meaning most of Cleveland uh, in the 1920s. And the founder of Ohio Knitting Mills, a guy named Harry Stone, he and his partner, Walker Woodworth, uh, founded the Ohio Knitting Mills in the National Tack and Screw Building. Oh. And these, uh, this is a box of the, uh, well, as you've already pointed out, they're uh, 8 seconds half-inch machine screws. Hmm. Um, you're probably wondering what the uh, head. It's a flat head. It's a flat pan head. head pan head. And uh, but what I really like about it is this little figure they have on the box of a little robot made out uh -huh. of nuts and bolts. And <laughs> he had a nickname. It was the company's mascot, and it was called Nat. Nat? Why Nat? Nat, short for Nat National. Oh. N A T. Wow. I think it'd wow. be an awesome kid's toy. So uh, You have to edit this out so that you know, my competitors don't make it. <laughs> don't know the secret? Yeah. The uh, Cleveland in the 20s was a happening place in terms of the maker Absolutely community and was. the country's history. Uh, you know, Cleveland and, it, and Cleveland and really, gosh, the whole Great Lakes region. I mean, everything from Buffalo and Pittsburgh to Chicago and Milwaukee. That, that was the Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. the height of the industrial era. Yeah. And vast fortunes were being made and um, the the amount of work and the amount of opportunity was unfathomable. I mean, to give you an idea, we, you know, we complain about population growth here in Portland and the Bay Area and New York. The population of Cleveland in the 20 years from 1900 to 1920, the population tripled. Wow. Tripled. Crazy. Crazy. And a large, large influx of people from Europe, of course, the mm -hmm. European migration. But, of course, there's the Great Migration from the, the, from the South. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of uh, people, blacks especially, fleeing the Jim Crow South. And they were making. They were making. They were things. making. They, they were. So were the man, factories were going up practically overnight. And uh, new types of manufacturing processes, metallurgy, and chemistry, and electrical, and just mm -hmm. every every ology out there was coming up with new do ways to do things. And people were flooding in to cities for opportunities to participate and get paid well. Starting with getting paid well. Do you think that they were that that was the epicenter of the maker culture in the United States, teaching people crafts that they could pass on from generation to generation? Wow, that's an interesting question. 
I, my, my impulse is to, is to believe that that would not, is to say, frankly, at the, at the time, no. And let me qualify that by saying a lot of the people, let's take the population that was coming from Europe. Uh, Cleveland was a very wealthy city. It was considered one of the wealthiest cities in the world in the 1920s. It, I just recently heard a figure that's something like 70 out of the 100 wealthiest individuals in the United States lived in Cleveland in like 1915, mm. 1920, something like that. And the um, homes and mansions that were being built, even just relatively modest homes, were really very beautiful. The, the residential architecture in Cleveland and Pittsburgh, and, you know, all throughout that industrial zone that, you know, what we now call the Rust Belt, there's, there's incredible... Um, craftsmanship in the building, stonework and plasterwork and glass, uh, you know, the leaded glass windows. I grew up in a house which was built by a wealthy industrialist in Cleveland, well, a suburb of Cleveland, Cleveland Heights. And every surface was beautifully carved and shaped and molded, and it was really spectacular. And there were um, whole populations, like whole towns of stone carvers that would um, relocate to these industrial cities like Cleveland uh, because there's so much opportunity for it. There's so much uh, demand for the craftsmanship. So, and and I, I think it's probably true of, of people coming from the South. They brought practices and they brought traditions, whether it was oral traditions or music or how to do things. They were more agricultural, of course, uh, people coming from the South, particularly people who are agrarian sharecroppers but I think that to your question you know was it an epicenter of craftsmanship I, I I wonder if perhaps this being about 100 years ago that era say the 1920s the beginning of the quote roaring 20s um, there there were so many industrial practices that were being invented and there was this massive explosion of manufacturing, industrialism, assembly line. Um, of course, Henry Ford had innovated the assembly line, like, what would it have been, 1915 maybe, something like that, you know, just a few years prior for the Model T, etc. And people were figuring out whole new ways to make whole new industries and sets of products, products people weren't there wasn't a precedent for. So the question of the craftsmanship in it, to me, introduces this kind of question of um, what is, where does lineage, where does history, where does sort of a background and a continuity of practice figure into defining the craftsmanship? So, well, let's go to let's go to the craftsmanship definition first, so we yeah. can ground it ground it on that. Is it, first of all, is there anything else you want to say about what happens in this studio? That oh well, what I you're crafting I, here. What I could simply tell you is, um, we're not in my vast, you know, expansive, airy. Um, Atelier, my urban homestead in Cleveland anymore. We're now, um, I've decamped to the West Coast really for personal and family reasons and needs to be closer to family. But um, this little room is kind of a little pod, an archive pod. Most of what's in here are prototypes, samples, and artifacts from the last uh, 12 years of the Ohio Knitting Mills brand renewal. Hmm. And um, I like to think of this little room, other than it being my laundry room, <laughs> modestly. And there's also drills and sanders. <laughs> yes, and well, but you know my basic hand tools because I am, you know, a, maker, a maker needs his tools. But Lattice. more than anything, it's a chrysalis. You know, the Ohio mm-hmm. knitting mills. I've had to take a few years off mm-hmm. from active production. We didn't knit the last two seasons. We didn't sell the last two years because. I needed a break for yeah. lots of reasons. And so everything in here is, I like to think of it as being in a chrysalis. And soon a beautiful butterfly <laughs> will, will ease out of this room, that little door there. And um, I'm as excited as the next person to see what it becomes. Well, it's pretty cool now. I do like the chrysalis a concept. but uh, So let's get back into craftsmanship. Yeah, Tell what me, is craftsmanship, yeah. What, what is your definition of craftsmanship? Wow, okay. Uh, you know, I... When I distill this notion of craftsmanship, and you know, the the most basic way I, I think I think of craftsmanship the way a lot of I think the world thinks of craftsmanship, which is um, a, it's shaping and manipulating and forming materials with 
an ethos and an eye towards quality and uh, thoughtfulness and a mindfulness and, you know, a, a really, I, I can't quite find the word, but it's sort of a finessed and a, a very practiced finish. And, you know, historically we think of craftsmanship as uh, doing something unique and special, often um, the creating of utilitarian and functional objects with um, an exceptional level of quality. Um, with a practiced hand and eye and with exceptional and often, not often, but sometimes rare materials. And it tends to, and it, you know, we tend to always think of it historically as being the provenance of certain materials like glass, clay, metals, mm -hmm. fibers, leathers, hides. Um, Do you think it crosses over to what people would refer to as artisanal food? So bakery, well, cheese, beer? I, that's... The answer is absolutely, and I think that's um, a really kind of timely question, actually, because um, if can I come back to that statement, that statement, and sort of make a bridge between that question and sort of this tradition question, in that or the you know historically craftsmanship was just inherently part of life. And um, it was close to many people because so many people actively were involved in making things, um, even in the most modest level, um, you know, in, in, the, in the making of a home. <laughs> I don't mean the house itself, but, quote, homemakers, you know, the baking of the bread, et cetera, et cetera, which, which you've misled your audience to think <laughs> I do down here. Don't come, to my, don't come here for, for, uh, for pastries. You could bake in here, I think, matzah anyway. I have a Bunsen burner. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, that the, the, the experience of craftsmanness, you know, the artisanal quality, as you call it, I think was, was something that was close to most people's lives simply because um, everybody had to participate mm -hmm. in handling and touching and shaping and forming materials in sort of fundamental ways. Um, even, if, even if one had a very kind of pedestrian kind of role in society, you're, you know, you're farrier, you know, you shoot horses, or, um, you know, one were, you know, you made barrels, or somebody was, you know, a, a shingle maker, those are crafts which no longer practice, those are extinct mm -hmm. crafts, but, you know, um, the business of baking, which um, can be no more complicated than moving a, uh, a unit from a freezer to a heating unit and then voila, mm -hmm. uh, you know, most people who are in the business of making food and baking um, used more primary materials and they paid much more closer attention to the ingredients yeah. and how they combined them. So that experience of crafting was inherent in life as we know it. And, you know, when we talk about the 1920s, when you asked about was the explosion and was this massive expansion of manufacturing industrialism an epicenter of craftsmanship. I think it was a beginning of what I refer to as industrial craftsmanship. I, I, I think it may have taken a few decades for um, people within an industry to um, discover the craftsmanly qualities and you know develop an oral tradition and develop sort of a lineage and to have like a next generation to teach how to make a beautiful car how to upholster an automobile in a way so that it's really really just tight you know the upholstery is just perfect and has that je ne sais quoi mm -hmm. you know there's a quality in a well-crafted um, object which we know when we see it and smell it and touch it's like oh this is beautiful it just says it radiates beauty but then there's that little shinsukwa that certain i can't put my word name on it the japanese refer to it as wabi-sabi mm -hmm. you know it's an essence it's mm -hmm. a, it's the soulness that's inherent um and that's something that comes with a little bit of time so in my mind this sort of current um trend or fascination um, with artisanality, which seems to live largely in the world of foods <laughs> and cheeses and beers. Well, no, I think you're right. And I, I, that I, I feel paper and, and uh, leather and well, it's, clothing. It's, no, and it's absolutely in everything. Mm -hmm. um, there is this 
um, there's a um, cult, uh, it's just you know an outright huge cultural phenomenon, but everything is artisanalized. Mm-hmm. Damn it! Damn it! <laughs> well, I have this theory that it, it, this gave birth in the seventies, late seventies, eighties, and nineties. So the research I conducted recently with nine hundred mm-hmm. people, and mm-hmm. I asked the question, "What do you crave more?" Sophisticated personal technology that makes your life easier, yeah, okay, or um, artisanal craftsmanship. So, eighty mm. percent of the people said they crave artisanal craftsmanship. So, my feeling is, huh. hypothesis is that because of the technology revolution, that that has become ubiquitous and it's intangible, and people seek what some has become ubiquitous. Te- the desire, the sophisticated technology, oh, yeah. the okay, concept yeah. of yeah. It used to be something that was desired. And then it was expected. And so people don't crave it because it's just so ubiquitous and easy to get. Whereas it, it dominated the scene in terms of our consumer culture for a couple of decades. And an out, outcry of that was the desire for people to have more tangibility. Yeah, you know, as you describe that, I, that's a fascinating statistic. You know, in a formal survey as it is, it's... I'm, I'm sort of imagining this hundred-year progression, and I think, I, I think, gee, well, the future ain't what it used to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, there was a time when um, I'm thinking about when we were we young lads, mm-hmm. well, before we were we young lads. Uh, you know, when technology started really. Um, I'm talking about maybe in, you know, from the 1920s to the 1950s when technologies and the emergence of new technological devices, gizmos, uh, goods, etc., were explosive. You know, were just emerging so fast, and it, it was such a phenomena that um, that was also when industrial design um, as a design practice developed. Mm-hmm. Also in Ohio specifically, the guys like Victor Schreck and Gost, um, who in the 1930s, he came from a ceramics family in central Ohio and Sebring um, that made tablewares. That was a big industry in that part of Ohio. Um, and he became the grandfather, as it were, of industrial design in, in that um, we started to actually see people giving the housing the shape, not just the functionality, but the form of these new technologies started becoming um, also very much objects of attention. And we, we, they, were, <laughs> they were often given these, these shapes that expressed um, futurism, modernism, movement, but also they were humanized in mm-hmm. a certain way. And they were, they were uh, given a distinction. And today, the impulse, I think, is to um, treat new technology form in a way as to make the object somehow want to disappear to make the function of the object the only thing that you see. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the new iPhone, for instance. Mm-hmm. No, it's multi-billions of dollars of development. It's billions and billions of dollars in revenue. It's a, it's a big, big game-changer piece of technology, and yet it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, it's a little slab. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. that, it's that two thousand and one space odyssey mm-hmm. slab floating in space, but with much smoother corners mm-hmm. and more reflective. Well, surface. I think you could say that probably about Google Home or mm-hmm. the other devices that are yeah. coming up. And and so compare that to a Donald Dusky radio, Bake Lake radio from the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Yeah. which had similar sort of function in terms of delivering content. Different level of beauty, though. So I guess that's the yeah. question is, does craftsmanship have to be nostalgic and, and old, or can an object of technology be really well-crafted mm-hmm. and deliver the same kind of emotional benefit to the user? Well, that that's a good question. You know, I just can I just um, stop for a moment on the notion of craftsmanship being nostalgic and old. I, I'm not suggesting that there's a nostalgic old, um, inherently nos- nostalgic oldness to craftsmanship. What I am saying, and maybe I wasn't clear in stating this, is that craftsmanship, um, the tradition of crafts, craftsmanship, is something that's passed on and conveyed. Mm-hmm. That through 
um, time. You know, the time basically imbues um, a certain rarity and a certain connection and a certain touch point mm-hmm. to um, a more rarefied quality. Of, but um, so does that so, say that? So that's to, not the same though as it being backward looking. It's no, old because it, it's been around. But is it supposed to pass hurdles? You know, so yeah. there's a big art, there's a big craft community um, mm-hmm. like Etsy, mm-hmm. and I would say some of the people there um, are passing a certain level of a hurdle, and some are just inventing in terms of uh, replicating mm-hmm. a, a, mm-hmm. a fine way of doing something in the past, and some are making something completely new. Yeah. So does that mean that you're saying you don't think craftsmanship has to have any kind of legacy kind of to the design concept? And therefore, could, well, could, yeah. a, could a home object like from Google Home be considered crafted? Huh. Well, I, I, that's, that's a question that kind of leads me to, to another bifurcation, like sort of split in the road as I pondered this, this point of inquiry about craftsmanship in the future. And um, I guess I would describe it as um, there's that aspect of, quote, craftsmanship, which is the quality of an object, um, how the object is made, the materials it's made, it's finished, etc. And then there's another aspect of craftsmanship, which is to behave in a craftsmanly way. Mm-hmm. And um, it is not as dependent on, quote, how good it is, as much as the impulse to create, okay. the impulse to manipulate and shape mm-hmm. and form, you know, to be makers. And Lord knows Etsy, um, you know, from the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, quote, makers who present there and the stuff they make, um, Man, there's <laughs> there's all levels of good, bad, mm-hmm. good, bad, ugly, and different. Yet, what I think, you know, is probably true of pretty much everybody there. Maybe not everyone, but most of the presenters is that is that behaving in a craftsmanly way, and it can um, apply to violins or clothing or cheese <laughs> or beers. <laughs> Or the new technologies, I, and I and I'm trying to see or feel or experience. I'm not sure where is craftsmanship showing up in code, mm-hmm. in algorithms, and well, you all probably the have to change the rules around how you define it. So because it's about so what you described was mm-hmm. the creator's point of view. So let's go to the receiver's point of view. Okay, when, and when when it comes to craftsmanship what does the receiver create yeah yeah they create? well you know from that perspective that's you know i think about back in the day low these many years ago when, when, when the mac os when you know the mac operating system when we had the mac the the apple versus microsoft wars we had the macintosh versus the pc um Smackdowns going on, mm-hmm. and uh, a smack people always rather smugly, and I guess fairly <laughs> would talk about the elegance of the operate the, what we refer to in the biz as the user interface, you know, the user experience. That the Mac operating system just was more intuitive. That's the that's the popular term of art about mm-hmm. well designed systems, um, and. I, I keep coming around in my thinking. I'm thinking, like, all right, where am I experiencing new technology that's being very well crafted? And because, to your point of view, and to your point, it's not the the maker's anonymous mm-hmm. totally. And in fact, the source of the experience is pretty much anonymous. It's a black box, or in the case of Apple, it's a very white box, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with rounded corners, and. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I haven't a clue what the hell's in there. Mm-hmm. All I know is they're really small, <laughs> and it's very complicated. And it, and it was it was designed in California and made in China. Mm. And beyond that, um, you know, I can't touch, smell, he, hear it, but I experience it in a real profound way. So what what am I experiencing? It. It's not the materiality of its making. That's just the envelope 
that you know Johnny Ivey's team puts around it. Um, what we're experiencing is how the operating system, how intuitive, how easy is it to use the applications, how easy is it to get the result after. So I'm trying to, you know, create actions and mm-hmm. you know, trying to get stuff out. You know, I get this thing to give me things. So, so, so how you're does saying craftsmanship that people want ship? magic? I mean, is that you're saying that they expect magic? In no, 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 no. I'm not saying that as much as what we, what I want. And I think what everybody would like is um, for the devices, these which are these individual gizmos, which occupy so much of our time and, frankly, are so important to our daily lives, you know, well beyond just amusement and distraction, that they perform with in ways that we experience well-crafted performance. Okay. That um, there's this transition going on, now that I kind of put in those terms, that what historically craftsmanship has been a function of, through the function of the things that they put out in the world, that, you know, they've offered us in the world. And in the meantime, you know, we fill our lives with this artisanalness, which has always been inherent. It's like a guild experience. You Mm -hmm. want the best beers, the nicest breads, the softest yarns. And it's, of course, a pleasure to be able to sort of indulge in that. But there's a certain, I I think, indulge is the word. Mm -hmm. Um, um, The larger part of our lives does get consumed by using technological and digital things and I, I, I hope and I like to believe and I think we are seeing a um, growing sense of how do we craft our technologies um, you know there's this constant improvement of the algorithm so that your so that your your uber call <laughs> you know not only does the car show up but you have more <laughs> comfort and confidence with the driver and all these sorts of things so it's like this intersection between indulgence and practicality I mean is do you think hmm. if you look at craftsmanship hmm. of you, of yesteryear you know and mm-hmm. kind of industrial setting that you describe um, and then you look at today, what we just discussed mm-hmm. is kind of mm-hmm. more technologically sophisticated, mm-hmm. current, current design. They both seem to have this indulgence and practicality intersection. So what is the common thing? What do people crave if you look at craftsmanship in two different ways? And this experience that you d- expressed, what, yeah. what do people crave? In, I think at the heart of it, the bottom of what we really gain and what we really want and crave from pressure is, is is an experience of connection to source that um, we want to feel uh, somehow in a, really in place and that part of part of a larger world part of where things come from because we're surrounded by and surround ourselves and fill ourselves with things we can't identify their origin story. We don't know where they come from. We don't know who made them. We tend to, um, this artisanal impulse fills in those blanks. And what's been craved is an experience of authenticity, uh, an experience of genuineness. And we know, we we, we know genuineness. We can smell it when we, when we can see where it comes out of the ground, so to speak. We can, Hmm. you know, feel, uh, part of its and that we're participating in its creation, and maybe that's a better way to put it. Maybe that's a, hmm. more of what we crave is to crave uh, participating hmm. in the creation of something, and um, that's in fact, uh, you know, all this you know, forty minutes later of talking. That's kind of the essence of perhaps how I would, could have answered the question way back at the beginning. What is craftsmanship? You know, participating in the creation of something, and uh, to me, it's a very human impulse it's, it's it's just very primal and uh, we find all kinds of materials and ways to do it and um, we're challenged um, in our highly consumptive globalized world now to find ways that we can continue to participate but it, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that crowdsourcing is such a phenomena and social media is such a phenomena because there's this impulse to participate 
and be part of community in some way. We, you know, <laughs> we call these social media gangs communities. Mm-hmm. You know, but sort of. Yeah. Well, you know, it's very easy, of course, to to be uh, judgmental or to to be skeptical. I am one of those skeptics. Like, if that's a community, man, bummer. <laughs> but I, but I don't discount the desire and the craving for wanting to be part of a human experience like that. You know, a togetherness and craftsmanship is part of the currency of uh, participating in um, creating something. So uh, we're going to wrap up soon. And um, I've got one more question for you. Please. It's like a, a two-minute question. Okay. Um, that was a beautifully said. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I, I think we, we landed on a really interesting place about the definition and the filter and mm-hmm. the openness to it and the the sense of origin and authenticity that's required. So what would your advice be to other creative directors who are creating what's next in the world? I'm going to answer it with a little bit of um, an awareness of the role, the the professional role of creative director, which is to be, which is authorship. Mm-hmm. And um, what, I th- where I think successful solutions, whatever the problem is that a creative director is is taking on solving, the su- the most um, engaging, the most enduring solutions will be the ones where there is a place for others to participate, to see reflection of themselves, and to add to the texture and tone of what's produced uh, because so much of what we're producing are not objects as much as experiences. I mean, we do objects, obviously, but experience and experience design is is really emerging as a very substantial amount of Hmm. how we spend our time. And um, the most successful solutions are the ones where people get to be part of um, some aspect of it. Hmm. They're not passive observers. They're not just passive consumers, you know, put in their mouth, their pocket, on their wall, whatever. Um, but they have ways to feel like it reflects who they are and what's real for them and how they bring themselves and their people into it. Um, it's, it's, it can be a bit of a, a challenge for the ego, <laughs> but it's, um, I think, a healthy challenge. Um, you know, I, I love how we wrap this because you're... What you are saying is essentially what I heard a strategy director at a digital company say yesterday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. The connectivity to the real experience. Yeah. And I, I love that those things are in common, whether it is something that you're making out of materials um, that are beautiful and, and functional and have some history to them or you're creating a completely new virtual experience the, the design principle is very much the same so thank you for being with us on Craving the thank Future thank you so much I really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation it was really cool being in this uh, what you called it something a butterfly or anything this is a, oh my um, my Ohio <laughs> Knitting Mills chrysalis the chrysalis yes I think isn't that isn't that what caterpillars <laughs> Like, what do yes. they, they weave it or they, Something cra- they craft it? Caterpillars craft these yeah. little hard shells. And yes, they do. They craft they, it. And then they go into their pupae phase. <laughs> the pupae. And then magically, the some man. weeks later, they become these phenomenal little flitters of color that can fly. I mean, damn, I'd love that. I have to uh, go and read the handbook of metric gears. Um, I have some memorizing to do, so yeah. I'm going to have to sign off now. But thank you for being here with us. Okay. Well, when you're done with that, here's the Handbook of Design Components, Catalog D220-3. That's even better. Yeah, got all your samples. Michael, thank you for coming over. You're welcome. Um, talk to you again soon. Thanks. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to Craving the Future. Our musical director is Peter Himmelman, announcer and branding expert Lisa Schneiderman, and your host, Michael Perman. For more information about Michael and his company, visit us at saywhat.org. That's C-E-S-T-W-H-A-T dot org.